If you're new or just visiting, we're in week two of a series called Written on the Heart. And what we're trying to do is figure out what two-thirds of the Bible is all about. If you've ever tried to read the Bible, you begin in Genesis and origins and early family, you get that exodus, wow, slavery, freedom, and then you get to Leviticus and it's like laws and laws and laws and laws. What do we do with these laws? And so we're, uh, last week we built a foundation. Today we're going to build part two of the foundation. And over the next two months, what we hope to do is to make sense of the Ten Commandments and how to read them, how to study them, understand them, and apply them with the goal that next time you go to do your through the Bible reading and you hit any bit of what we call the Old Testament, you'll have a better lens with which to see it and read it and not get lost by it. That is our hope and our prayer. So, okay, recap. Three ideas from last week. We have a podcast. If you missed it, listen, but I'll summarize in a minute. Three terms. Law. When you see that God gives a law, we, we tend to think rules, penalty, judgment, prison. But law, as God defines it, is teaching, way, instruction. So God's giving, there are 613 teachings, not rules that make you or exclude you from being a child of God. The way the law was given by God was not to say, if you do 613 and do them right, I'll accept you. No, he'd already accepted them, loved them, called them, and said, now these are my ways. Okay, so that's the law. Covenant. Uh, he gave these teachings to a group of people that he was in relationship. Covenant is like modern-day marriage, except stronger, because we take marriage so flippantly these days. It is a partnership based on promises and commitments. So God promised to be with his people. God kept his commitment to his people. And in response, he says to the people, now live like my people. I love you. I'm giving you my heart, my life, your freedom. Now I want you to actually be more like me. I made you. I know you. I want you to change. And here's how. So the teaching is based on God's commitment, not in reverse. Not if you do these things, I'll make a relationship. Does that make sense? If you miss that, these seem like, man, I never want to be a Christian because I'll never stack up. By the way, none of us stack up. So they're not the way to relationship with God. They're a way for those in relationship to flourish. Third thing, new covenant. What God said to Moses and these people is not the end of the story. These are all leading up to what Jeremiah 31, 31 promised. In those days, says the Lord, I will put, make a new covenant with the people of Israel that will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers on the mountain. So what we're studying is not the end of the story. It's the middle of the story. And Jesus is the fulfillment where Israel failed. That is key. Israel is going to break the promise, break the commitment, but Jesus is going to keep the promise, keep the commitment, and make a way that these writings won't just be in our brain, they'll be on our heart. I just saved you 40 minutes from last week. Actually, listen, because those layers are important to pick up on what we're going to hit. Now, today, two parts. Part one is to finish the foundation and ask, how am I supposed to read the Old Testament? As a Christian... As a Jesus follower, how do I read it? And then what we're going to do is we're going to do a case study. And we'll, begin, we'll begin. We'll use the Ten Commandments. We'll do commandment number one. And the goal today is to get the grid. 
And if you can get the grid, when you come next week, which I hope you do, hopefully we don't bore you to death and you never show up, but when you do, you can come with the second commandment already thought through. And the teaching can affirm what you've already studied. I'm going to show you exactly how to do it. But some of you are like, well, I, I can read the Old Testament fine. All right, Leviticus 19. How well do you read the Bible? Leviticus 19, I need to break something before I remake it, okay? Leviticus 19, 18 says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, specific. I am the creator God. Now, how many of you have heard that before? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so I read the Bible. I listen to the Bible. Of course I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Leviticus 19, 18 says, love my neighbor. Okay, that's cool, but look at verse 19. Keep my decrees. Do not mate different, animal, different kinds of animals. I've got a dog, a daisy, beautiful dog. I'm not going to mate my dog with a cat, right? That's gross for one thing. And secondly, because isn't that what God's after? Because Leviticus 19, 19 says, don't mate different kinds of animals. Do I treat these the same? Then the next one, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed, right? Okay, now basically every farmer and every urban gardener is already breaking that law because if you want more than one vegetable, God says no, right? And what about GMOs? What, what, is, that, where, is that in the mix? What about the blending of seeds? Are we disobeying as Jesus followers these commands? All right, we'll go with the next one. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. That's impossible. Even 100% cotton is lying to you. I mean, think about it. What, is God saying don't shop in H&M? Is he, what, what is he saying? Is polyester rayon wrong? And if you wear a polyester top, you can't wear a linen bottom, which would be fashion messed up anyway. But, you know. And what about spandex? Because I think anything with 5% spandex, I'm not kidding. You buy your next pair of jeans with 5% spandex, and it gives you that flex. It's just nice. You think I'm lying. Try it. Just 5%. What, what? So, so I got clothing. I got animals. How do, this is why this is so important. Normally, as Jesus followers, let's not kid ourselves. We just fly past it and say, man, I don't even get that. Let alone, I'm not supposed to apply that. What do I do? Well, how are we supposed to read the 613 laws. We're looking in this series at 10, but the 10 are the beginning of a total of 613 in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How do I read them? Here's the goal. Three options. I told you last week. I'm going to give you three options that Christians use to read these laws. And I'm not going to bash any of them. I'm just going to tell you the pros and cons. And if you fall into any one of these or none of these, uh, this will cover probably most of us. This isn't something we divide over. Our elders and our leaders aren't exactly on the same page. That's totally okay. All I want you to do is think. What you believe about the law will impact how you read the law and if you apply the law or if you reject it. All right? So a little bit of groundwork, a little bit of trudging, but it'll, it's worth it. Option number one, none of the laws apply. So there's a whole wave of interpretation that says, all 613, none of them apply. Why? Hebrews 8.13 says, by calling this covenant, speaking of the new covenant, new, Jesus has made the first one obsolete. What's obsolete and outdated 
will soon disappear. So this is what's called a dispensational understanding of the Bible. I don't try to get lost, but I want you to know the terms. Dispensational reading of the Bible says there are seven epochs, seven eras, seven seasons of human history. And as you read the Bible, this interpretation says you see God dealing differently with mankind, differently with Noah, then differently with Israel, differently with Jesus, and differently in the future. And so the season of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the dispensation or season of law. But that has been ended with the coming of Jesus. Jesus now leads us into the dispensation, the season, the era of grace. So, whereas Moses gave law, Jesus gives grace. So there's a huge divide between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Therefore, 613 commands don't apply at all. In this way of teaching, you'll, you'll hear very little teaching from the Old Testament that's supposed to apply to the believer. Right or wrong, it just is a way of interpreting, a valid way. By the way, many of you come from a Calvary Chapel background. You're like, well, isn't this the right way? This is most Calvary Chapel's view of how to read the Old Testament. Not saying right, saying wrong. I'll give you a pro and con. The pro is, is kind of obvious. It takes the newness of the new covenant seriously. Hebrews 8. What the old is becoming obsolete. It, it, it gives a high view of what happened in Jesus. A con, though, a, a challenge is in Romans, Paul clearly says that the law is good. And the law has value. And the law is written for us. So, it's a tension. There's a reason that this option is, is taken, but you just have to be aware of that. Second option. You with me so far? All right. Second option. Only the moral laws still apply. This will be called a covenantal view. Genesis 17, 7. It says, I will establish my covenant. God speaking as an what? Everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So this reading of the Bible says there's not two like distinct, totally separate covenants. There's only one. God said everlasting covenant with Abraham. So Jesus is a renewed covenant. That is because Jesus is the better person than Moses in Israel because Jesus fulfills it now the covenant has been refreshed, renewed with, with a new way of living. But there's less of a divide between old and new. So in the covenantal view, 613 commands still apply. But in light of the renewed covenant. So let me get to brass tacks. How do you say they apply, but in a renewed way? A covenantal view sees three types of laws. Many of you have probably heard this. There are civic laws, some of the 613, about how to run the government, how to be Israel. Well, we're not Israel. Jesus has come, and I'm an American, or you're a Mexican or Canadian. So those laws don't apply. Then there's ceremonial law. Some of the laws are about the temple and sacrifice. All of those laws point towards Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. So, so now those are not, they're not my laws anymore. But there are moral laws, the Ten Commandments. And love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Those moral laws are still binding on us today. Again, some of you say, like, oh, I, yeah, 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 that's the right way. 
Well, I'll give you a pro and a con. Pro is this view actually sees the differences between the different kinds of laws. Like that's helpful that love your neighbor is different than keep one seed in your soil or don't do, you know, blended clothing. But the downside of this, and I think it's a big downside, is it puts in the reader's hands what a moral law is. We say what's ceremonial and civic because nowhere in the New Testament does it say only keep parts of the law. It never says you only keep part of it. So, so the, again, ups, downs, which is, which is right. There are different ways of reading it that lead you to different results. Now, there's a third option, and I don't want you to give my, I want to give you my grid, and it's actually a blend, because there's not two, there's probably five, but I didn't want to kill you. And so I give you the two major ones, dispensational, separate, covenantal, one long with a twist in Jesus. But there's another way that's kind of blending, I hope, is the best of all of them. But again, take it or leave it. We're not pointing fingers on, on which one you take. Option three, learn from all the 613 laws, remembering they are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll tease that out. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in this view, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the law. So, so what does that mean? It means a couple of things. First thing, the 613 laws are all still profitable for teaching. Now I know this is kind of like base level, like academic, but my friend, if you get this, you'll be able to read your Bible with a lot more clarity. So what I'm suggesting, the grid I'm going through for the Ten Commandments, is every one of them in one sense applies to you. In that, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God-breathed, profitable for teaching, correcting, uh, rebuking, training in righteousness. So the man and woman of God, the servant of God, will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If that is true, then every one of these laws can teach me something. So unlike dispensationals just says they're gone, I say no, they're here, but they're focused on teaching. Second thing, 613 laws were intended for ancient Israel. So Israel as a people is the focus of these 613 laws. How do I know that? 95% of the laws, and some scholars have counted this out, apply specifically to ethnic geographic Israel, the group walking from Egypt over to the land of Canaan. 95% of them have to deal with issues that as a Jesus follower, if I tried to live out, they would be impossible. Because they have to do with animals that don't even live here. And cultural situations that have nothing to do. So as a Jesus follower, I'm not going to say I have to live out the 613 in a way that Israel did. They were God's words to Israel, culturally specific. And so in light of that, I don't throw them out, but I see them for what they are. I don't reject them as, that's old school, thank God for Jesus, and new school. I say, no, they are the revelation of our God to a real group of people, what did they need to learn and what do I learn in light of what God has said? 
And the reason I say it is because nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to obey only parts of the law. So I'm not shooting down the other views. I'm simply saying they have some challenges, and I think this hybrid. Now you're like, wow. Okay, thank you for the lecture. What do I do with it? Aha! Payoff. What we're going to do is this five questions that you can ask about any law that as a believer in Jesus, I think will help you get to the heart of what God is doing. I want to tell you what all five are, and we're going to apply all five to the first commandment. By the way, if you want to get ahead, next week, look at commandment number two and ask this week. Ask these five questions so you can come with a framework and see how well it lines up. What I'm saying is we can read the Bible. You don't need to to wait once a week for someone to throw a Bible study at you. You can read it. You can understand it. You can interpret it. You can apply it. You can live it. You can. But sometimes you haven't been given the tools. So we want to give you those tools. All right, all five. Real quick. Number one, what am I supposed to learn? This is like the bottom line. You should ask yourself, when I read about not mating different kinds of animals... I'm going to ask myself, what am I supposed to learn? Now, in order to do that, we're going to ask four other questions. Number two, what did this mean for ancient Israel? Now, that's going to take a little digging. I may need to get a study Bible. I may need to look at a commentary that is someone who's dedicated their life to loving Jesus and studying the cultural situation and see how God by the Spirit is using them to give me eyes to see stuff I didn't see. But I want to ask, what did it mean for Israel? In order to get the heart of what I'm supposed to learn, I need to know what it meant. Third thing, why did God give it? It's kind of subjective, but I'm saying, okay, in light of what I know of Israel's story, of the human story, of my story, why would God give this? What's the significance? What's the purpose? Four, what does this law reveal about God's heart and his ways? So in light of God giving it, in order to know why and what, what does it mean for me? I just say, like, what do I get of the heart of God? The giving of the instruction of the Torah is not a list of rules. It's God giving his heart and saying, if you want to live in line with my heart, here's my way. Specifically to cultural Israel thousands of years ago, which is, by the way, why it seems so foreign to us. It seems so crazy to us because, like, we are not living in the desert. I just went to Israel, my wife and I, and I realized, wow, this is a totally different world. So it should seem strange to us, but when you're there, it begins to make sense. Number five, and you can't miss this one. What are the implications of this law based on our New Testament situation? So, the reason this is so important, I've said 613 don't apply to us, yet they do in a way that they teach. You have to ask, based on who I am in Jesus, where does this law fit? A lot of the 613 laws are flat out quoted in the New Testament. Which should immediately tell me, I should ask myself, does this law, does Jesus quote and affirm this law? Does Paul quote and affirm this law? Does John, do Peter, do they build on this and say, in light of Jesus, here's what I do? If they do, then I need to treat it as my law. So I'm looking, in light of Jesus, some of it goes away. Everything to do with the temple obviously goes away, but some of it remains. Does that make sense? 
I hope it's a helpful grid. And so, so here's what we're going to do. Let's just let's jump in. Now turn to Exodus 20. And we're going to do it. And because this is such an easy one, I spent all this time on background because I want to set you up for the other ones. And you said, well, what's the big deal about this one? Uh, wait till we get to Sabbath. It's going to get real. Your grid on how you read it, when we get to honor the Sabbath, is going to come out in the way that you read that command. So we're practice, practice, practice. And in a few weeks when we hit Sabbath, this grid will come back up whether you believe it or not. All right, Exodus 20. Let's read the first three verses. And then we're going to throw in this grid of questions. And we're going to worship Jesus and enjoy a tasty lunch. All right. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So I want to look at the setting of what's happening. I want to figure out what this means to Israel. Now since I've done a little bit of my homework, I'll give you a little bit of homework revealed. The Ten Commandments sit differently than the 613. The Ten Words are what they be called in Judaism, because later in Exodus, I think, 38, Moses says these are the ten words. And then in Deuteronomy, when he quotes these laws again, he says, remember the ten words. It's not ten rules. It's not ten suggestions. It's not ten principles. It's not ten commands. Ten words that begin God's teaching. The difference between the ten and the others is if you read Exodus 19 and 20, all of Israel was at the mountain and they heard from Yahweh these ten. Freaked them out. And they said, Moses, you go to the mountain and you meet with God because this is going to kill us. They were so scared by the presence of God that after God gives the ten words, they're like, Moses, we out. You take over and we'll happily read the email. So, so that's why Moses fronts the commands, the words, the teachings with the ten that all of Israel heard. So the ten are different in that they don't have a penalty. You're going to notice the other ones have a penalty if you disobey or a blessing if you obey. These are mostly more general, more generic. They're not the only words, which is why I'm a personal conviction. I'm not a believer that you only keep the ten and the rest go away because I think that's misreading the context. The ten were the beginning of the 613. They're not meant to be independent, all right? That's my conviction. We can disagree. That's okay. Buy me coffee and we can chat, all right? Now, what am I supposed to learn? Let's hit this grid really fast. What am I supposed to learn? Well, just read the first few verses. God spoke all these words. What I'm supposed to learn is that God speaks to his people. The beginning of the teaching is an invitation to relationship. God is not dictating if you want to measure up and make it, here you go. Good luck. These are not steps to climb. Rather, it's an invitation. God invites the people in the context to the mountain. They are to live with God. So the point of the commandments, particularly number one, is an invitation to relationship. Right, that's what I'm supposed to learn. But, but okay, what do I do with Question two, what did this mean for ancient Israel? Well, verse two tells us clearly. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. By the way, L-O-R-D, when you see it in all caps, it is speaking specifically to the creator God who in Genesis 1 made the heavens and the earth. 
because God could mean anything. God can mean any old deity. So the translators put it in capitals so that those of us who don't know Hebrew or Greek would know capital L-O-R-D is speaking specifically about the Creator. I am Yahweh the Creator, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What did this mean for Israel? This meant that God, Yahweh alone, had rescued them and kept his part of the covenant. That's where that covenant idea comes in. God made a promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. God keeps his promise in Exodus when he delivers them from 400 years of slavery. God is a promise keeper. God is a covenant keeper. God is faithful. So hear me. Israel needed to know whatever they do should be in response to God's faithfulness. Now, you say, well, what about me? We're going to get to you. Calm down. Very selfish. But, but you're, you're going to come up. But you need to know God speaks to his children. If you want to hear the voice of God, he will speak. And he is faithful to his covenant. So he says, out of the fact that I delivered you, out of the fact that you were slaves and I set you free, we can ask question three. Why did God give it? All right, look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Ancient Israel needed to know God's faithful. We need to know God's faithful. Ancient Israel needed to know God speaks. We need to know God speaks. But why did he give it? Why tell them and why start with this command? Well, I think the obvious, Moses is not their leader. Oftentimes, we choose something or some group because of the leader. I'll, I'll tell you why you're at sunset. I mean, totally like broad strokes. You're at sunset probably because you, the teaching fits with you, right? You like someone who spits and yells or something like that. Or you like the music, Something about the leadership or the way it's presented has been attractive to you. You think you choose it because of the theological grid, but most of us choose it because of the leader. Israel needed to know from day one, Moses isn't the leader. God is the leader. Why does God, so, so the first thing God says is you will have no other God but me. Now, you shall have no other gods grammatically in Hebrew can be translated, you must have no other gods over against me. So NIV says you shall have no other gods but me or before me. You could translate it over against me. You could say you must have no other gods in distinction to me. Mind-blowing concept. First thing God says, I delivered you, not Moses, not the Egyptian gods, I did. And by the way, in distinction to me, you cannot worship another god. Implication, there are other gods. He said, no, 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 the Bible says that, the Bible says that there's one God. Actually, does it? The Bible affirms that there is one creator. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh Elohim, God the God. But in the Bible, you will see the names of plenty of other gods. Baal, Asherah, Molech, Dagon. The Bible does not say that they are made up. It actually calls them by name. 
Now you need to see why ancient Israel needs to hear this. Why would God say, God say this? 400 years they've been under a system with Egyptian plurality of gods. And by the way, the 10 plagues are the 10 defeats of the 10 Egyptian gods. Direct. God says, bam, 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 bam. I'll take you all out. These are my people. I am the creator. And these smaller case G gods are losers. I am the victor. Gets his people out. They're about to go to Canaan, which has its own list of Canaanite gods, including Baal and Asherah and Molech and others. So the people who have never followed God by themselves, never, need to know straight up, you have a choice when it comes to who gets your affection, your love. And by the way, the God that you serve leads to the life that you live. Now I'm going to jump to five in the application, and then I'm going to jump back. The God that you serve leads to the life that you live. In America, we have made ourselves the God. Right? I don't believe that. That doesn't seem right with me. So I take this, and I take that, and if this is helpful, and I create my own system and say, oh, wow, I am God. I know it's right. And who are you to tell me otherwise? We get intolerant when someone says, God can't be like that. Let me tell you what I believe God to be like. Commandment number one is so important because Israel needed to know there are lowercase g's. There are other gods. There are other powers at work. There are other, they're not the creator. They weren't before all time. There's only one God who is before all things. But there are rebellious forces, rebellious, smaller case powers at work trying to usurp the creator. And now in the New Testament, it's often called demonic power. All I'm suggesting, and don't freak out. All I'm suggesting is you have to give your allegiance to someone. And in the U.S., we usually give allegiance to ourselves. That is lowercase g. And God's saying... If you're going to live my way, there's only one leader. Because, by the way, there's only one who rescued you. There's only one who's been faithful. And left to your own devices, because I know myself. I am a total wreck. Apart from Jesus, I'm hosed. I'm Jose, but I'll be hosed. <laughs> Apart from Jesus, I have nothing. So, can you see now, reading the Old Testament now becomes life-giving. Israel needed to know there's lots of choices. I need to know there's lots of choices. And the choice that I make and the God that I serve will dictate the life that I live. Choose wisely. All right. Number four, what does this reveal about God's heart? So what do we get about God's heart? Well, what God has said here is if you look at verse two to verse three, I'm the Lord of God who brought you up out of Egypt. God has said, I love you. God has said, I'm with you. God has said, I'm for you. So, so what do we get to the heart of God? God is faithful to his people, and so covenant-keeping matters. It's not like God's saying, if you measure up to the 613, I'll accept you. No, he's saying, I've accepted you while you were in slavery. You were a mess. You had nothing. I loved you like eagle's wings. I pulled you out. And by the way, because I pulled you out, what I am asking of you makes sense. 
I'm faithful to you, live faithful to me. And those of you who've been in any long-term relationship, you realize it is, your, it is your commitment to faithfulness that's the open door for the other person to be faithful as well, right? If I'm faithful to you and I say, I do, and we're going to be married forever, I'm going to be faithful to you. What I'm praying is you'll be faithful to me. And is that selfish? No. That's the way it goes. Partnership based on promises and commitments means that if Israel has been rescued by God, they ought to give their life to God. Now, this is where, this is where it's going to get and nail us between the eyes. But before I do that, it just happened this, this Thursday, I was working on this, and in my Bible reading, because I'm just reading through the Bible, a light went on. First Kings, I'll throw it on the screen for time. First Kings 22 says this, Judah, speaking of they got in the land, and they were divided into two sections. Israel was the northern ten tribes, Judah was the southern two tribes, right? And so Judah, this is, First Kings is speaking about Judah's sin. Judah, that means the people, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up the jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. Now what is it that they had done? They had also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles on every high hill under every spreading tree. Now those of us who don't know a little bit of the background... Basically, all those gods in Canaan that they took over, who worshipped with Asherah poles under the spreading trees on top of the hills? The Canaanite gods, the Canaanite people. So God had said, man, you can't mix practices because I'm the creator and those practices aren't in line with my heart. But in Kings we read, the people disobeyed God. It got worse. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. In order to have fertility, you had sex with the, with, the, with the prostitute at the place of worship. And in that act of worship by having sex, somehow the land spawned productivity, spawned flourishing. Now, is that the heart of God? That a group of people would be treated as sex slaves? Absolutely against the heart of God. But what you believe leads to how you live. And if you believe that the worship of Asherah is going to lead to flourishing in the land, then you'll live for Asherah instead of the creator God. You can already see where this is going for us. Your allegiance matters. So there were male prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out. God got rid of those people so that his people would follow him in his ways, but guess what? We slip into the rut, don't we? What everyone else is doing, we do as well. All right, so what are the implications? Question five. What are the implications of this law based on our New Testament situation? So I find out the heart of God. I find out what it meant to them. All of that has a purpose. Here's the purpose. In light of Jesus, where does this law land for me? Well, in this particular case, it's totally clear. Matthew 22, 35 to 40. Have no other gods before me. That's Genesis 20, verse 3. We'll look at what Jesus, what he quotes in Matthew 22, 35 to 40. Go to Matthew 22 if you're not there yet, because I want you to see it. When we say the 613 commands are different in light of Jesus, what we're affirming is we take Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that Exodus and Deuteronomy and 
and, and all the other books was leading towards. So Jesus' words have authority because Jesus fills what Exodus is speaking about. So Matthew 22, verse 35, says this. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So what's the driving commandment? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Pause. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6, which is exactly Exodus 23, retold 40 years later. Exodus is told two months after they leave the promi- the, the Egypt. Then when they make it to the edge of the promised land 40 years later, the next generation needs to hear the law. So God doesn't come down and give them new laws. Interesting. There's no new laws. God speaks through Moses and says, these are the, these are the terms of the covenant. These are my laws. And so Jesus quotes exactly what Moses said to the people. Love Lord your God with everything. It's the first and the greatest commandment. So does Exodus 20 verse 3 apply to me? Absolutely yes. Have no other gods above the creator God. There's, there's one God would worship. Second one is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So because Jesus affirms this as central as Jesus followers in this particular case. We, we live it out in the same way that Israel did. We need to be diligent to know the heart of God so that I can live wholeheartedly devoted to him. So it would be inappropriate for me to say, man, thank God I don't live under those rules because God has set me free in Jesus. Thank God for grace. Grace means I could do whatever I want and Jesus forgives me. Thank God for Jesus. None of us would say that, but we live that way. But what if the very heart of God written on our hearts is that because God has been faithful to me, because Jesus has saved me, because grace has come in, now I want to respond with absolute allegiance to Jesus. What if I lived in a way and spoke in a way and put my heart, I want to know God's heart and I want to live it. I want to do what Jesus commands. So Jesus says, All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I want it all. So hopefully this study has gotten us thinking. The Ten Commandments aren't just some principles. Frankly, I'll I'll get in trouble, but who cares? Uh, Who cares if they put the, the copies of the Ten Commandments in the courts or in the schools? Who cares if they do or they don't? I don't care as a follower of Jesus. Here's why. They were never meant to be on tablets in a building. They were meant to be on our heart. They were meant to be on my heart. God wants me to worship him. So what's the point if you put it on a building and no one lives it out? The law was not written to be on stones. It was written to be on my heart. So the bigger question is, where's my heart? So we, we drive home every week to one of the, these studies should lead us to something. They don't lead us to a bigger brain. They should lead us to motion and action. And this week it's obvious. What does living fully devoted to Jesus live like, look like for you? That's where this study takes us. Because Jesus affirms, have no other gods before me. What gods are you following? 
What ways of living are you following? What, te- what practices are you following that are dishon- hear me, dishonoring to God? And God's not saying, stop that because I'm going to smash you. He's saying, that doesn't lead you to the right place. That practice, what you're doing is not life-giving. You think it is, it's not. Follow me, I have the words of life. So the teachings of Jesus often affirm exactly what was given to Moses. Sometimes they don't. Cloth, seeds, buildings, ceremonial washings, they don't in the same way speak like this speaks. So this morning, where's your heart? What does it look like to live fully devoted to Jesus? I pray that that's where you're stirring even now. And so we're going to respond. We're going to, we respond. We don't just hear the word. James says if you hear the word and don't do anything about it, it's useless. It's no value. So we worship in response and we ask God to align my life to the heart of God. And so we're going to invite you to do that now. I'm even going to invite you to stand if you would. And we're going to, we're going to sing songs that hopefully stir your heart. Hopefully the songs simply like validate what you just heard and where you want to go. Which, by the way, is why, and if you haven't picked up on it, we choose the songs in light of what's being taught because we don't think it's just like, oh, music and a message and lunch. It's all one integrated thing. So the songs that we're about to sing come out of what we just heard, and hopefully they, they're a vehicle to lean you into the heart of God. God's heart for you is good. God's for you, not against you. God's calling you close. He's inviting you like he did Israel to have no other God. So you have to stand in front of him, and you are right now. And he already sees what's going on here and with confidence. Can you say, man, my heart is after God. I'm not perfect. I'm breaking a few of these 613, so am I. But my heart, I'm going for God. I want him. I want Jesus more than anything, and I want Jesus to reorient my life in line with his leading. If that's you, then this is a great time to worship. If it's not, now's a great time to repent and say to God, wow, I didn't know your way. It's clearly, now that I know, lead me, guide me, teach me. His grace is here for you. He wants this for you. He's got the power for you to actually live it out. So I'm not saying man up, woman up. I'm saying let God fill you up. And when God fills you up, you will desire what he desires and live his ways. What would it look like if we as a church took this seriously? (laughs) It'd be radical. It would be radical and beautiful. That's where we're headed. Now, this is annoying. We'll see you in two months, man. This is where we're going, and it's good. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you are doing the work in Israel, and now you are doing the work through Jesus in us. And so, Lord, we affirm like Israel, that we have not known your ways or we have ignored them. But because of you, Jesus, we've been set free. Now we can have your very words written on our heart by the Holy Spirit. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come. We invite you, Holy Spirit, come now and show us how to apply what it means to have no other gods but you. Show us what to add. Show us what to cut. Encourage us in what you're already doing. Show us where you're pleased, Lord. Show us where there's room for growth. We need you. So we don't look to Moses or Brandon or this church or anyone else. We look to you, Lord.
now not on a mountain calling down commands, but filling us with your very spirit within. Holy Spirit, come. And we pray that you would take it all. Help us to follow you.